HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. Hi, this is Celia Kutcher, host of Animal Instinct, and you are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. All right. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. We are coming to you, as always, live from the back of Roberta's Pizza here in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And you, of course, are listening to The Farm Report. I am here to welcome you to Thursday, our new day. Uh, You will now find us popping up in your iTunes or Stitcher feed or live on the website Thursdays at 10. So thanks for joining us. I, of course, am your host, Aaron Fairbanks. And today we are going to be talking about greens, Gotham greens to be particular. We are joined in studio by Viraj Puri. Viraj is the co-founder and CEO of Gotham Greens. They are a worldwide pioneer in the field of urban agriculture and um, regional experts in the production of greenhouse-grown vegetables and herbs. And we're going to be talking a little bit about him, his history, the company's history, rooftop farming, and looking forward to some of the barriers and opportunities in urban ag. Welcome to the show. Good morning. It's great to be here. Thank you. Thank you. It's like a balmy day. I feel like walking in past all the greens we have here at Roberta's, I had a little nasturtium flower for a snack, so my tongue is still tingling a little bit. Um, One of the things I, I wanted to hear from you before we kind of jump into everything is on your website, you know, you guys talk about being inspired at the beginning of Gotham Greens by innovation and technology, but being driven by a sense of duty to address the ecological issues in farming and agriculture. And I'm wondering if you could tell us where that sense of duty came from and what, you know, back in 08, 09, and I'm sure probably a little bit in 07, as you were thinking about what you wanted to do, what you thought those ecological issues were. Yeah, so I was working broadly in environmental engineering and green design principles and conservation. Uh, From a very young age, I was drawn toward 
conservation and ecological issues, mostly from a recreational standpoint. I grew up in the outdoors, uh, rafting, hiking, trekking, and our family vacations often took us into wilderness areas. So from a very young age, I, I developed an appreciation for the natural world. And through college and high school, I, I tried to find internships and jobs that were could address some challenges that are you know facing facing the planet and the environment but also uh, harness technology yeah. and find solutions so i was working broadly in renewable energy green building i spent some time working on fuel efficient cookstoves in in africa and slowly started reading more and more about our modern agricultural system and just the enormous impact that it has on the natural world um, agriculture is the largest consumer of land on the planet it's the largest consumer of fresh water Approximately 70% of the world's fresh water withdrawals go toward agriculture. Um, it's the leading source of global water pollution in terms of water runoff, so et cetera, et cetera. So it, it, I started to recognize these growing trends, and then I was also exposed to controlled environment agriculture or greenhouse agriculture mm-hmm. and saw that using certain techniques, it could address a lot of those issues. It could use far less land, far less water, could eliminate all sorts of agricultural runoff. So it was a perfect meeting of the minds of uh, deploying technology to address resource considerations. So what's like the next step? You're you're like, okay, then what? You're like, how did you decide Greenpoint, Brooklyn? I mean, I feel like there's something to me that's kind of interesting that your first two sites are also super fun sites. So I'm sure that's like not something you want to spend a ton of time talking about. But this is a thing that comes up with urban agriculture all the time is especially in New York City, people are very concerned like, oh, is this like safe? Can I eat this? In a way that they don't ask that question when they go into any other market and the like the traceability, the line of things, it's like a big um, selling point of urban ag. And so I'm wondering like, how how do you go from like the idea to the implementation? What were some of the, the first kind of things that you had to think about and figure out and, and do? And how did you put your team together? And that's 17 questions. So start with whichever one feels <laughs> all, all, easiest. All, all great questions. I might need a nasturtium flower to get me through those. Yes, but um, We can make that happen. Uh, it, you know, it really it was it was the hydroponics that was very attractive to urban agriculture. Look, there's there's many different ways to farm sustainably and responsibly. And I and I and I believe that. The methods you choose have to be well-suited to their unique geographical context, economic context. And, and as you correctly pointed out, cities don't have very good soil quality. In some cases, they're highly polluted brownfields or even Superfund sites. So uh, we saw hydroponics as a way to skirt that. Yeah, um, that uh, you know, As I'm sure a lot of your listeners know, hydroponics doesn't use soil. And so we figured this was a very modular technology that... that you know, you could you could get a lot of um, yield from a small footprint. So very early on when we decided, my partners and I, which, which I'll introduce in a little bit, um, uh, decided that we wanted to do urban agriculture, we started looking at hydroponics as a technique that was really well suited to that. Mm-hmm. And um, not interacting with the soil, I think we took away some of those health risks associated with that. Um, we wanted to be commercial scale. You know, we were very, very clear about that up front, that we wanted this to be a financially viable operation that could operate year-round and generate the lion's share of revenue from the actual crop production and the sale of those crops. And, uh, you know, more and more things started pointing to hydroponics as, as something that's commercially proven and if done well, uh, could be a financially um, sort of, you know, sustainable enterprise. And then enter in my partners, um, 
one, you know, given that we wanted this to be a business, uh, teamed up with, with my partner, Eric Haley, who has a finance background. He, during his MBA, he worked on sustainable enterprise business plans. So he was also drawn, drawn towards sustainability, um, as a force for good in the business world, but brought that business acumen, you know, ability to write a business plan, raise capital, understand valuations, raising debt and equity. And then, and then our, our third partner, Jen is, is a plan scientist who has, uh, I believe she's been on this show as well, um, or, or at least some other shows on Heritage Radio Network. But So she's a, um, a, a very deeply trained uh, plant scientist who has commercial experience as well as an academic background in controlled environment agriculture, hydroponics, sensors and controls. So we all got together. We all have complementary skill sets. Uh, I, I was sort of working on project management and things. So we set out to find sites where we could actually build one of these uh, hydroponic greenhouses and you know New York just has very little space right? yeah. it's such a densely built up city densely populated city so we started looking at rooftops as this viable alternative um, they're just acres and acres of underutilized rooftops how so. did you think of rooftops well, there had been some chatter about it. You know, yeah. even Jen, during her her master's degree um, at the University of Arizona, started looking at some buildings in in Tucson where she could do some rooftop farming, and rooftop gardens were starting to spring up. Uh, you started to see urban planners, designers, entrepreneurs um, from from around the world looking at looking at rooftops, and green roofs had obviously gotten quite popular. They they have and. And just to, just to differentiate a little bit, green roofs are vegetative gardens that to help capture stormwater, help to insulate the buildings. Uh, generally, if done well, they can um, uh, you know last for a very long period of time, increase biodiversity in cities. But generally, they're used with native grasses and not non really productive uh, in terms of food production. So, and we start to see examples of that pro- uh, you know pop up in Brooklyn too. Um, Obviously, the you know the the fine folks at Eagle Street, and yep. then you know that obviously Brooklyn Grange came out of that as well, and even Roberta's. You know, there so, is a greenhouse yeah. on the top of our studio right now. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. I can feel the greens emanating down on us, and uh, so so clearly we didn't like come up with that concept, but we realized no, no. that it was we realized that it was something that that could be pretty cool. So uh, tried to convince building owners to let us use their rooftop. That was a, a challenge, and we spent a couple of years like doing feasibility studies and um, looking at the structural engineering of buildings, trying to get a business deal done, uh, trying to get permits and approvals from the city. Mm-hmm. There were certainly regulatory challenges as well, logistical challenges. So yeah. fast forward a little bit, we finally settled on this on this great building in Greenpoint. I mean, we love the idea of being in Greenpoint. It was a, a neighborhood that was going through a lot of change and a lot of adaptive reuse of former industrial sites. And but so that was one factor, but it was more just a function of the real estate that we were able to get a deal done with with an industrial developer to to lease their rooftop and and we installed we designed and installed this this high tech greenhouse facility and uh, started started growing greens and selling them in the marketplace and before we knew it we were we were sold out and the demand for the product was super high. So we kind of looked at one another and said, look, I think, I think this is working. We're kind of onto something here. You're so. like, we patted each other in the back, had like a small moment to celebrate. <laughs> and then we're like, what more work can we do here? Yeah. Let me, let me go back to harvesting, weeding, um, driving the truck, <laughs> delivering, you know, just kind of doing everything. So, um, I want to ask uh, just a question of clarification. When you were, you were saying, thinking about the initial idea for the business that you wanted the lion's share of the revenue to come from the actual greens. Are there other revenue sources than the greens? 
Not for us, okay. but um, I, I think what I was inferring there was that some agricultural, small-scale agricultural operations also rely on other sources of revenue, sort of an agritourism component, sure. yeah. uh, product extension, events, environmental education, yoga events, classes, you got it, weddings, Range again, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, and, and and those guys are, are a worldwide phenomenon. They've done a really you know super nice job, and I think given that given the climate here, they're constrained a little bit by year-round production. So yeah. I think those other sources of revenue are are, are, are very very intelligent, you know, in order to, to be a financially sustainable year-round enterprise, which they've demonstrated that they can be. But um, for us, um, the year-round production was super important, especially to start getting into more mainstream institutional food uh, distribution, so mainstream retail, mainstream um, institutional. They really rely on year-round yeah, production. They so They're like, we want it, and we want it tomorrow all exactly. the time. Because that's our menu for Tuesday. We do X, Y, Z. Um, well, can you talk about who were some of those like first customers that you guys reached out to and you're like, hey, do you want to buy greens that we grew in Greenpoint on a roof? Like, what was that conversation like? We got a lot of puzzled looks. Yeah, uh, we got a lot of puzzled looks. People were a little skeptical. Um, a lot of people wanted to taste the product first. Sure. You know, we tried to pre-sell it even during the construction phase. And, you know, we had to raise a lot of money to build that first greenhouse. It, you know, it, was, it cost over a million dollars. So... Um, there was definitely some skepticism in the marketplace. Some, we decided to go out to different different channels of distribution. So we went to mainstream retail. So we went to places like Whole Foods, um, D'Agostino's, Food Emporium, some of the big supermarket chains. Um, we went to some of the e-commerce folks like Fresh Direct. And then we went to some of the independent stores uh, like um, Dean and DeLuca and some of the smaller chains. And then we went to a bunch of restaurants as well. And we had varying degrees of success along the way uh, of levels of interest. Um, most people sort of said, look, this sounds like a great idea. You guys look like you've assembled a good team. We like the concept. But the proof is in the pudding, so right. to speak. So once you guys have built a facility and you actually have some greens for us to taste, smell, touch, um, come on back and, and we'll give it a whirl. Um, Whole Foods was super supportive. They were sort of in that camp, but they were they were excited about what we were doing. And um, some of the people that we met there definitely uh, shared our values, and they've obviously demonstrated a strong commitment to supporting local and sustainable agriculture. So they were an early adopter, which was great. And uh, we had some some notable chefs jump on board super early. Like uh, one that comes to mind is uh, Chef Michael Anthony from Gramercy Tavern. Hey, Mike. Um, I, I spent two years in the Gramercy kitchen, so I'm nice. Like, shout, shout out for Mike. Mike Mike's the best. <laughs> I and, probably uh, touched some of your greens. <laughs> <laughs> um, how did you, you know, speaking of, so you guys initially were producing five different types of greens. Like, how did you decide what to grow? What was like the trial and error there? And were there types that maybe you wanted to do, but they didn't work as well in that environment? Or what was that relationship like between the like space and the variety and the market demand? Definitely. So we picked up the seed catalog, ordered a ton of seeds, um, and just put them to work in trials. Now we had some experience because Jen had, had been managing greenhouse facilities for you know the past decade. So she had in her notes and her files, she definitely had um, various metrics like yield and days to harvest and you know what some of the risks were which which varieties might be susceptible to bolting or 
which products had good shelf life. So those were all considerations for sure. But despite growing in a controlled environment. Can we define bolting? Just, I think people know, but just in case. Yeah. Bolting is, you know, generally happens when a plant, when a, when a head of lettuce or something like that, a leafy green gets a little old, it's a little bit older and it reacts to high heat and sort of the central stalk just kind of literally bolts up and it causes bitterness and um, it's, it's, it's not something that you want um, in, in your product. So you want to probably harvest it right before it bolts. And, mm-hmm. and generally in the summer in high heat, um, some, some leafy green varieties uh, tend to do that. So, and, and despite growing in a controlled environment, which, which theoretically you create these perfect optimal growing conditions for the crops and ultimate they, control. Exactly. And, <laughs> and really, as, as Jen likes to say, it's, it's really more modified environment agriculture, uh, because it's, it's, it's really very, very difficult to create this like totally controlled environment. And, um, Plants are biological things. They have personalities and there's different weather conditions. And yeah, we have tools like fans and vents and lights and different things to, to manage the climate. But um, different, every environment has its own sort of little micro ecosystem and uh, subclimates and stuff. So, so getting back to your question, it was just like a lot of testing. We, yeah. we didn't want to, we didn't want to test too many things. So we started with five products, but some of them were blends, like mm-hmm. leafy green blends. So there was four or five different varieties within that. And some worked well and some didn't work. And we're continuing to trial vegetables and different, different. you know, we've, we've played around with tomatoes a lot, different types of leafy greens, different types of herbs. And we're constantly in a state of R&D. So over the last six years, we've probably trialed, you know, well over 200 different types of, of varieties. I would like to be at the other end of that salad table. keep them coming keep them coming um well so you know you open in may of 20 2011 um it's a fifteen thousand square foot facility you guys are producing roughly the same yields as a six acre farm is that right that's about right yeah um and then it's working the next space is as as we're familiar with here at hrn on the top of the whole foods down in gowanus um, which seems like a uh, like an unconventional partnership, um, but one that makes a lot of sense. Do you? Th- if I buy Gotham Greens in Whole Foods, did they come from that roof? Do you just have like, like is there like a dumb waiter that goes down from? The- <laughs> Pretty much, it's an, it, 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 it's an elevator, but yeah, it drops right down into the produce section. Three hundred and sixty-five <laughs> days of the year, um, very like Willy, Won- Willy Wonka, at like. Exactly. I mean, it's, uh, as we like to say, it, it, it turns food miles, this whole notion of food miles, and, and, and turns it into food footsteps. It doesn't really get much closer in a, in a mainstream retail environment to get one's fresh produce, you know, right where at the point of, yeah. of growth and, and harvest. So, yeah, so Whole Foods uh, was an early customer out of our first facility out of Greenpoint, Brooklyn, and um, they were they were, you know, to speak on their behalf, I think they were impressed with what we were doing and the consistency and the reliability of this premium quality local product that they were getting day after day. And uh, they were, we, we weren't being able to produce enough of it, frankly. And right. um, so they, they saw this as a really great alternative to the conventional produce or coming from California that was four, five, six, seven, eight days old by the time it hit the shelf. And and uh, customers were really responding to, to what we were doing. So uh, we got into some discussions about uh, potentially partnering on a greenhouse project together. And um, the new Brooklyn store in Gowanus came up. And um, as you noted earlier, it's, it's, it's on a f- former Superfund site. So they're in the process of remediating it. And in response to that being a Superfund site, they really wanted that store's personality and characteristics to be 
as environmentally sustainable as possible. So they wanted it to be, they were aiming for lead platinum status. And the lead is this um, a certification program through the U.S. Green Building Council. So they wanted to be, and platinum is the highest level. Mm-hmm. So they wanted the store to have a lot of renewable energy. They wanted it to recycle water. They wanted to prevent any sort of runoff into the Gowanus Canal, um, use recycled materials, and they definitely wanted some sort of green roof component. And after they saw what we had done in, in Greenpoint and some of their executives had toured our facility, the conversation sort of advanced to, well, why not incorporate one of these greenhouses onto the roof of the building? So uh, we got to hashing out a deal because obviously it's, you know, there's a real estate component, there's an investment component, there's permitting and regulations and kind of spent a year hammering out a deal. And uh, then we announced the partnership, which was, which was really exciting for us. And so that's a 20,000 square foot greenhouse. And uh, it, 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 you know, Whole Foods sort of built the store and, and with the greenhouse in mind, and then Gotham Greens, um, you know, built the greenhouse, and we own and operate that greenhouse. But we have a we have a strong partnership with Whole Foods from a supply standpoint, and mm-hmm. providing them with unique product offerings and a lot of co marketing. So the the lion's share of the the product that we go in that greenhouse goes to Whole Foods, and we support some other local restaurants out of that greenhouse as well. Um, I, I just think that is so cool. Frankly, <laughs> um, but then your next growth jump. Yeah, I mean, you guys, your the next space that you opened was in Chicago, and more than triple the size. Um, and then again, now you have just this past February opened a space in, in Queens. So, can you talk about like as you're thinking about uh, expanding your company and what sites make sense, where makes sense, like? How are what are the factors that go into those decisions? Is it just looking at like good partnership opportunities? Is there a geographical component? Like, how do you decide where to go? Yeah, there's a few different factors that we look at. I mean, first, first and foremost, we realized that we were we were doing a nice job, right? We were being able to produce these high quality greens consistently year round. There's a lot of customer demand, so I mean, we were really achieving what we set out to do. So. We said, let's keep doing it. And we were making money doing it. We were profitable. Our investors were happy. Our right. lenders were happy. Our customers were happy. It's a so lot like, of boxes of greens to like, you know, repay the, like what initially you said it was a million dollars to build the first. So I'm exactly. thinking about like, I'm like, oh, each box of greens takes a while. <laughs> like, yeah. And a lot of it is because of the yields that we get. Right. Mm-hmm. So just our, our team of growers work really hard to produce as, as many greens as we can, reduce the crop cycle so we can get as many crop turns per year. And then everyone wants local, good quality local greens, right? Um, not just New Yorkers. So why not other cities as well? Right. And so uh, other cities also have people who care deeply about the environment and local food production. And, and even if they don't really care about those things, they just want a good quality product. Sure. That's cost competitive, tastes good. And, and hey, if, if, if it checks other boxes, like it's environmentally sustainable and it supports local jobs and a local economy, well, then that's gravy on top of that. So... Uh, Chicago is the third largest city in the country. Um, it's it's a cold weather place that doesn't have a lot of access to year-round food. And uh, it's also got a thriving food culture and uh, a rich food history. So, and, and urban agriculture, there's a lot of, lot of urban farms there. So we saw it as a market that, that was very receptive to, to local food production. So we, we thought if we could bring our brand of a little bit, little bit more kind of commercial scale cultivation that there would be a market for those products so uh, we, we set off to find the right real estate in Chicago and it's challenging you know you go through commercial real estate brokers you go through um, you, uh, you know you talk to a lot of real estate developers landowners and and then 
but we'd obviously had a lot of success in New York through through these partnerships, like this partnership yeah. with, with with Whole Foods. So we were introduced to a company called Method Products, which is based out of San Francisco, and, and they're sort of an industry leader in their field of eco-friendly soaps and detergents. And they have a strong commitment to environmental sustainability, and they were um, in, in, in the throes of designing their uh, largest manufacturing facility until date um, on the far south side of Chicago. And they, too, wanted this this facility to be lead platinum and represent sort of 21st century manufacturing, that, that it didn't have to be smokestacks and dark, confined spaces. And, like soap making can be a dirty business. Right. Extractive <laughs> and just like all this pollution. And they wanted it to be turn it on its head that we could make this great soap using organic materials and we could power the plant with renewable energy and why not have food production in the plant as well? So their architect, um, who's actually a, a design guru, um, Bill McDonough of Cradle to Cradle fame, had read about our work and contacted us and uh, it was fortuitous because we were actively looking in the Chicago market and um, we got in touch with the folks at Method and worked out a deal and 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 set up roots in Chicago. So that was just really exciting for us. It just kind of represented our first expansion outside of New York yeah. and to see if we could really scale. And, you know, our our projects were working really well in, in Greenpoint and Gowanus, but we were a little bit confined in our space, you know, 15,000 feet, 20,000 feet. Even though we get those huge yield multiples um, compared to conventional farming, it still is not a lot uh, in mm-hmm. the scheme of things. Um, it was an acre of production, so that's equivalent to about 20 acres of field production. But, you know, we wanted more. And, there, and there's a certain degree of economies of scale that you get in terms of uh, just the overall um, capital expenditure and then also the operating expenses. Uh, you know, the bigger the better in some ways. So uh, we said, okay, let, let's try a different format. Let, let's try to go a little bit bigger. And so we settled on just under 80,000 square feet, just two acres. And uh, gr- great, great project there. Um, it employs over 50 people. Uh, 49 of whom are, are, are from Chicago. O- only one person from New York sort of moved out there. And um, yeah, we've established relationships with a lot of retail partners there, restaurant partners, community gardens, community farmers. Did you not- notice a difference? I mean, because you know, from when you were, were initially looking for a space for the, f- the first location and then you know, actively producing and looking to connect with customers, you, know, you fast forward six, five, six years, we're did people get it faster? I mean, were you able to see a change in like people's understanding of what the product was and the concept? Or I'm just I'm wondering like how fast that information is kind of trickling down from uh, the real estate community and then also from like the supply chain for the people buying the greens. Yeah, there's been a sea change over the last five or six years. I mean, we got very puzzled looks, um, you know, presumably laughed out of a lot of rooms early on. Back in two thousand nine, now you're the ones laughing. So I, I think you know. I just I think the space has also changed over the last few years. Yeah. I and mean, there's been so much more media exposure to different applications of urban farming, not just ours, but you know, container farming and vertical farming and aquaponics and hydroponics. And uh, there's just been so much more mainstream exposure to urban agriculture. I mean, the the agricultural secretary uh, and the USDA and large institutions like that have started to talk a lot about urban agriculture. So there's definitely been a change. Um, And I think we just also developed some credibility over those few years, having built and successfully operating a few facilities. And obviously the partnership with Whole Foods, a lot of people read about that. So yeah, it was definitely a lot easier. Now, that being said, 
we're still competing for real estate sure. uh, in, in, in markets that where real estate is of high value and there's competing costs and sometimes, um, sometimes you just can't compete. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, so uh, still again, just greens. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, so when you guys came back to New York, I mean, kind of talking about, um, you know, the, the, you know, big G government, uh, getting getting like with it a little bit the queen's facility you guys did get some funding from the new york state energy research and development authority um and i think that is like super interesting like why did they pick you to to give to write a big check to or did you pick them or how did that work yeah so new york state through the through the governor's office uh through their grow I'm going to butcher the name of this program. It's a great program out of the governor's office to, to spur economic development throughout New York State. Yeah. And um, we 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 applied, uh, and our application got sort of uh, uh, routed to the New York State Energy Research Development Authority, and we wanted to research and develop a, a form of you know our greenhouse agriculture using LED lighting which is a you know very energy efficient and use other automated growing systems that could really reduce the amount of carbon emissions per sort of pound of pro- produce produced and and the research authority was was interested in that and that's really their mandate is to support businesses that can can move us to a lower energy economy and a lower impact economy so um we applied for it, and it kind of went through a stringent review from as it does, from as, the state. as it does, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and and we we got some funding, which was great. And we also the job creation, so mm-hmm. the state is also incentivized to uh, promote small businesses and medium sized businesses that that can um, sort of commit to a certain amount of job jobs created. So our Queens facility has produced over forty full time jobs, um, so that was exciting. So the state contributed about seven hundred fifty thousand um, dollars. Which is still a, a small portion, but but a meaningful contribution to to what that facility cost, and uh, that was a really interesting retrofit on an existing factory building um, in a kind of economically underdeveloped part of Queens, uh, mm-hmm. in the Jamaica area specifically, Hollis. And this building was home to the Ideal Toy Company, which back in the day was the largest toy manufacturer in the United States. This is in the war era and pre-war era. And uh, they made the teddy bear, and they made the Rubik's cube, and all these other sort of um, wow you know, household like toys. toys. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that company eventually uh, went out of business, and I think its parts and pieces were picked up by the other big ones now, like Mattel and Hasbro and stuff. So this, so this building had a rich manufacturing history, which was cool, and now is predominantly used uh, for storage and, and light manufacturing. So. Uh, but it's this huge, huge building that's built like a tank and can kind of support support a large greenhouse. So um, a cool uh, building owner there who really saw our vision and, and really liked what we were doing. So, yeah, that was our fourth greenhouse and our largest in New York. And it's really allowed us to now uh, spread uh, our channels of distribution within within the New York market and even the tri-state area. So now we're servicing you know some parts of northern New Jersey and, and Westchester County as well. So... Um, yeah, so four greenhouses now, and now we're, we're looking to build more because uh, there's just a, such a high demand for, for local produce. For local produce. Well, we are going to take just a short break to hear from our sponsor. And when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about the face of farming and farmers in the future. So hang tight, folks. You're listening to The Farm Report, and we'll be right back.
program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market, America's healthiest grocery store with more than 400 locations throughout the United States. Download the Whole Foods Market app on your smartphone for recipes, sales, information, and digital coupons. Or visit WholeFoodsMarket.com to find a store closest to you. We are back. You, of course, are tuned into the Farm Report, and we are talking Gotham Greens today. And I'm going to spend um, the second half of the show kind of talking about the face of farmers, the face of farming, um, and, and kind of how you guys see it. I think that we, you know, the kind of the eating public, which is all of us, um, tend to really think of like farmers and food production, production very much in caricature. Um, so when we think of a farmer, we think of like, you know, an old white guy in some overalls on a tractor. Um, obviously, uh, you're not old or white or there's probably no tractors on the roof. Um, do you identify as a farmer? Yes. Yes and no. I mean, certainly not the caricature that, that, that you painted. And we're, we're, <laughs> we're very we're very mindful of that. We realize that. But. You know, there's a lot of shared characteristics, I think. Um, I think we have a deep appreciation for how difficult it is to grow food mm-hmm. um, and how, you know, we're not producing widgets, right? right? I mean, there's a lot of unpredictability, even in sort of greenhouse agriculture and, and controlled environment agriculture. And Can you actually, I'm just curious, like, what goes wrong for you guys? Like, what's a, like a bad day on a Gotham Greens farm? You know, we react very quickly, so there, you know, there, you know, we to, to avert any sort of disaster. But you can see a nutritional deficiency in, in your bok choy. You mm-hmm. know, you you can find a little bit of tip burn in your romaine lettuce, okay. uh, calcium deficiency, or something with heat or high humidity. So things can come up. Uh, we, despite being you know in urban environments, we get little agricultural pests like aphids and thrips and white flies and and other common agricultural pests. And um, you know, there's human error. There's mistakes. So it's not like, a, I feel like the opposite end of the caricature is in, you know, people think of hydroponics and they're like, oh, it's like a farm factory and guys in lab coats and like everything is precisely controlled and like, you know, bodish, if you will. So it's mm-hmm. like not, that's not right either. I mean, it, it can be. I mean, I think, I think controlled environment agriculture on one hand gives you this like amazing level of control that, that, that you can use a much more scientific approach and a controlled approach and measure your nutrients down to the parts per million, right? To mm-hmm. create this, uh, all these optimal lighting recipes and climate recipes. So, so yeah, it certainly up, does conjure up those images, many of which are true, but at the same time, it also requires, um, you know, just a deep understanding of plants, plant physiology and, 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 uh, pest management and being able to react. So there's a lot of shared characteristics with, with sort of that conventional farmer, Right. Um, so I, I think in a lot of ways we we do fit the bill with, with, with farmers. I think we are um, there's a lot of grit. There's a lot of determination. You deal with you deal with this unpredictable product. 
But at the same time, I think we're this new breed of farmer a little bit that, that takes a, a very entrepreneurial approach, takes a um, recognizing uh, different trends in the marketplace uh, amongst the food public and what they're, what they're seeking. They're seeking a lot of transparency and authenticity in, in their food production. Where is the food coming from? What are the values of this company that's producing this food? So we certainly work on not just being food producers, but also being a force for good in our communities, um, trying to communicate our brand and our values to our customers through programming, right? We, we do a lot of partnerships in the community. And um, we also have this like business, I mean, we're an investor-backed company. So we share a lot of um, characteristics with other startups in the consumer space or in the tech space, right? So we talk the language of Series A financing and Series B financing and valuations and things like that. But we're also talking about tip burn and, um, you know, seeds, seed varieties and, right. and, and lab analysis and stuff like that. So I think we're certainly a hybrid. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and I think the changing face of farmers uh, a little bit is is younger people drawn toward food production, but liking that they can maybe practice it in an urban environment. They can they can use more technology. They can use a lot of data. Uh, I think that's something that's that's transformed our you know economy and our entire lifestyle is just the plethora of data that we have and data-based decisions and solutions that we can make. And, and greenhouse farming is all about data. We're collecting millions of data points uh, every second. And we're taking that data and we're being able to make well-informed decisions based on that data. So I think there's a lot of parallels with that and generally our our economy and, and so how things are, are changing. So yeah, I think on one hand, we, we are those farmers that are mm-hmm. literally watching the plants grow and we're watering the plants every day. But on the other hand, we're also, uh, we represent sort of a, a, a new breed of technological entrepreneur. I feel like too, I, you know, you're hearing more about companies in this space, in an urban environment, uh, producing food. A lot of it is like lettuces and greens and things that are, you know, like a lighter, like load bearing. Um, do you... Do you see this type of agriculture as, um, you know, looking forward, supplemental to traditional agriculture, replacing certain parts of traditional agriculture? Um, What does that kind of relationship look like? What does success look like from more of a bird's eye view, maybe even less specific to Gotham Greens in particular, but how, how do the things end up like balancing out or redistributing, I guess? My my belief, and this is this is obviously a personal viewpoint, is that supplemental at best. Um, I don't think urban agriculture is necessarily going to replace more conventional agriculture. I think there's uh, for a variety of reasons. One is, as you noted, we're we're sort of crop constrained. Um, mm-hmm. To successful, there's only certain types of uh, agricultural commodities that can be grown profitably on a commercial scale using current technology in a controlled environment. And as you pointed out, leafy greens are one of them. Things like tomatoes, cucumbers, peppers. So really vining crops, Mm -hmm. crops that grow on a vine or crops that grow sort of like a head lettuce, leafy green, work well. Things like root vegetables are very challenging. Uh, Grains, you know, wheat, rice, barley, um, proteins, you know, probably fruit not trees. Roof, rooftop livestock farming is exactly. probably a ways off. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> so just just from a practical matter, um, using current technology. Now, of course, technology could change, and we could start growing rice in cities. You know, but 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 I think given kind of a snapshot of today, I think we're constrained by what we can grow. Mm-hmm. And the second thing is, I think 
uh, there's going to be competing real estate interests, right? Because these other types of crops need enormous amount of space to grow, uh, rice, wheat, and stuff. It's going to be very difficult to be able to to grow that in, in an urban environment. So all that being said, I think urban agriculture still has a very meaningful and significant role to play. I think to address all the issues facing our agricultural system and uh, these other trends in the marketplace like urbanization and population growth and climate change, we're going to need a lot of different types of solutions. And I think a more sustainable future is going to be comprised of, 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 of a whole bunch of solutions. And I think urban agriculture is one of those. And I think not just from the food production standpoint, I think that's part of it, but it's also the other things that urban agriculture represents. I think it increases food literacy in yeah. our urban areas. I think it can uh, improve public health. Uh, by, by by teaching people more about um, urban farming. I think there's a whole community development aspect. There's an environmental education aspect. And it just gets people, just the food literacy aspect. People just know more about healthy food and they're they're more exposed to food production. So uh, I believe, and, and, and you kind of alluded to this earlier, that, that there's a lot of different companies now that are coming up with different models of urban agriculture and, and more and more of them are sort of investor-backed and, and trying to really be commercial-scale applications. And, you know, I think there's going to be I think there's going to be a saturation point at some point because, you know, how many how many leafy greens uh, and microgreens does, right. does the city really want? Um, but but that being said, I, I there's still millions of tons of produce that's shipped into our cities every day that's grown using unsustainable methods in places that are really, really far away. So the more of that that we can offset and the more dollars we can keep in our local economy and the more uh, kids and adults alike we can teach about local food, I think are all major, major positives. One of the conversations you hear in agriculture a lot is, oh, you know, how are we going to you know, feed a population of 9 billion by 2050? How are we going to feed the world? And I think for me, one of the things that's often missing from that conversation, especially in the U.S., is kind of talking about food waste and how much food we waste uh, here. And I'm wondering, you know, greens are highly perishable um, and and also like, but the, then also like lend themselves well to different types of technologies, thinking about the packaging, thinking about the decisions about how, how to wash, how to ship, how to transport. Um, I'm just curious, like how you guys think about that waste aspect, where that comes up with your production and then how you think about that on the kind of consumer end. Yeah, as you noted, food waste is uh, getting a lot more attention now, as it should. Uh, it's it's estimated that anywhere between forty and sixty percent of the food that we grow in this country is thrown 60? away. Oh man! Um, yeah, I was reading <laughs> some stuff from the NRDC, and um, the New York Times covered it recently. And so, so that's just obviously a staggering, staggering waste of food. I mean, yeah. it's, it's criminal on a variety of levels. Obviously, all the wasted resources. I think it's it's shameful in in light of how many people are food insecure and have diet-related diseases and just don't have access to healthy food. Um, and, and so much of it is also done for cosmetic reasons. So clearly it's a very, very big issue. And and and, and leafy greens are, they don't last very long, as yeah. you said. They're, they're super perishable. So I think it's actually a nice overlap that what we were talking about earlier, that, that urban agriculture, you, you tend to find people focusing on leafy greens. Well, that's also the thing that is thrown away after like a week and right. it doesn't help if it's sitting in a truck for a week. So I think there's a really nice overlap there that the crop that's well suited to urban food production is also one of the ones that can't be stored for long periods of time, can't be shipped dry, can't be frozen or any of those things. So I think there's a really nice overlap there. And the more the greens are handled, uh, they're going to they're gonna break down. The more that they have temperature changes, they're going to break down. Um, so, so the conventional supply chain looks something like this. There's, there's 
greens that are grown in you know, thousands of farms across, say, California, for instance. Um, there are different contract farmers to some sort of marketing and sales company that will then uh, buy it. They'll go to farms where they have these mobile harvesting facilities, then all the greens are collected. After about a day, day and a half, they get brought to a central processing packing facility where they go through like a triple wash process through um you know it kind of beats up the greens a little bit and then yeah. they get packed then they get then they get all packed up and then sit in some coolers overnight so you know we're kind of already on to day two day two and a half or three and then they basically get shipped out uh, you know on semi trucks to another distribution center some point in the country and then it gets transferred to another truck and it's taken out of the cooler sits on a loading dock goes back in so it's going through temperature swings and then it's making it, say, into a wholesale market, like in the Bronx, the Hunts Point. And then from there, it gets loaded onto a smaller truck and, you know, it gets to a supermarket. I'm feeling um, tired over yeah, there. Yeah, right? Like, oh, and these greens, are exhausted. Over? these greens are exhausted. <laughs> they're jet lagged and, like, they're just, uh, they're just not feeling it. So, um, and by the time it hits a restaurant plate or a supermarket shelf, it could be a week old. And a lot of that waste that happens is, is because of that entire supply chain. So by, by sort of disrupting that supply chain, you know, growing them in such close proximity to the marketplace, we're significantly reducing food waste. Right. That makes a lot of sense. In the same way, I feel like more of an environmentalist because I live in New York. I'm like, I'm just like by virtue of like where I live in the space I occupy, I'm already ahead of the game a little bit. Absolutely. Um, well, we are just spot out of time. I have one uh, kind of final question on more of a personal note. Um, I know that you are a, an outdoorsman and a traveler, and I'm just wondering what, what the next big adventure on your bucket list is. It's a great question. I just did a great hike in, in the Idaho Rockies just, just, just this past weekend, which, which was awesome. Um, Wow, that's a great question. Uh, I'm thinking Zion National Park in Utah uh, w- with my wife and our, our nine-month-old, so take him on his first backpacking trip. I nice. think that might be on the agenda. Um, it's a part of the country that I've, I've only driven through, and um, it looks pretty stunning. That's awesome. And if folks want to find your greens, what's the best place to send them? Um, check out our website, because in addition to where uh, we find our greens, you can learn more about our sort of values, our production systems, our programming and partnerships. Um, I was working on some really cool partnerships with other local Brooklyn companies to make pestos and dressings and sauces and all kinds of stuff. But uh, obviously, you can go to Whole Foods Market. You can go to uh, Fresh Direct. You can go to Dean and DeLuca. You can go to the Park Slope Food Co-op. Uh, there's tons of places and, and obviously great restaurants as well. Awesome. Cool. Well, Vrash, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. It's been great. Thanks for having me. All right. You did it. You made it to the end of another Farm Report. Thank you. Um, As you know, this show, like all 32 of our live weekly programs, is available for free as a download via iTunes or Stitcher. If you like what you hear, uh, rate us, review us. It really helps other people find the show. It helps us know what you want to hear more of, what you want to hear less of. We are, of course, a member-supported nonprofit radio station, so if you believe in our work, please consider clicking that beating heart on the website and becoming a member today. Thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned in. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. 
You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.